I've got, I accidentally ended up creating like a little corner over there for uh-huh. Wonder Woman stuff. I've got the box for my Wonder Woman mug. I've got my Wonder Woman poster. I've got my Wonder Woman lunchbox. And now I've got my Wonder Woman calendar. Nice. It's like, I've ended up creating a little corner for Diana. Well, don't we, don't, don't we all need a Wonder Woman corner at the end of the day? You're right. You're right. We really do. <laughs> Welcome to Behind the Yellow Boxes, your one-stop comics history podcast. I'm Steph, your co-host and friendly neighborhood archivist. And I'm Brooke, your not-so-friendly, self-declared comics expert. We're two comic nerds with a lot of opinions, and we think it's important to know your history if we want to understand why comics are the way they are. And today, that history happens to also involve actual history and myth in the real world, more or less. Well, you know me very well. This is a recipe for stuff joy, if I've ever heard it. Oh, it is. Because it also happens to involve Wonder Woman. And one of our favorite writers here on the podcast, Greg Rucka. Ooh. Greg Rucka is probably best known to comic readers for his work with DC, where he did runs for Action Comics, Detective Comics, Gotham Central, 52, and his work with, with characters such as Renee Montoya, Helena Bertinelli, and Kate Kane. But he's also known for his independent projects such as Lazarus, Stumptown, Black Magic, and The Old Guard, which just had a Netflix movie last year. I have joked before that if I loved a book as a kid, when I'd come back to it years later, I'd usually find out it was a Rucka project. And I've honestly found that to be true far more often than not. Rucka brought a modern, fresh face to Batman comics in particular, building off the work of his mentor, Denny O'Neill, in creating a modern version of Gotham City and the Bat family that we now see today. We see influence of Rucka's work in a lot of modern adaptations, such as the TV show Gotham, Harley Quinn and the Emancipation of the Birds of Prey, or whatever that movie ended up being called, and the new Batwoman show, among others. While Greg Rucka is well-known in comic spheres for his handling of grounded plots and kick-ass women in general, he's also left his mark in modern comics with his distinct love and elevation of Wonder Woman. In recent years, he got to write an entire love letter to Diana and her history through his successful soft reboot of her origins in Wonder Woman Year One, and has been one of the most important voices and critics for Wendy fans when it comes to giving seals of approval. But all of this started in 2002 with his first work with the character, a graphic novel with artist J.G. Jones named Wonder Woman, The Hecadia. Rucka had not had a chance to work with Wonder Woman before working on this graphic novel, which is generally included in his in collections with his run on Wonder Woman in general. But his understanding of the character and ability to weave in narr- narrative traditions from ancient Greece into a modern story is obvious and captivating from the first go, which makes it all the more surprising that relying on culture and tradition of ancient Greece for a character like Wonder Woman who feels so defined by these things is still somewhat novel. In truth, the cultural aspects of the Hecadia as a concept and as the story itself are complex and fascinating, which has required some digging on our part to fully appreciate. So on top of talking about some interviews with Rucka himself, we'll be pulling from some academic journals, namely the Journal of Hellenistic Studies. We have to put our shared years of academia to use somehow, after all. I'm pretty sure this is what my master's thesis advisor had in mind for me when I was granted access to the university's JSTOR account. Listen, I've used my library science degree to unearth articles making fun of seduction of the innocent, 
We've all got our academic guilty pleasures. I feel like shared academic guilty pleasures is exactly the reason we became friends. Probably. The best approach to this topic is to talk about the events of the graphic novel, the tradition of Greek tragedies, and then the history of the story itself. So we'll be getting pretty in the weeds, and it's going to involve a lot of spoilers by necessity. So consider this your Stephanie Brown spoiler warning. If you're interested in Wonder Woman, but new to her lore, we really do recommend you read Greg Rucka's Wonder Woman comics, and the Hecadia really should not be skipped. So this is your final warning before things get spoiled. So pause the podcast, read some Hecadia, then come straight back to sort through your feelings with us, because this story gives a lot of them. Greg Rucka bookends the graphic novel with Diana, princess and most importantly, ambassador of Themyscira, locked inside her embassy to the modern world, reflecting on the nature of culture and traditions, namely of the importance of Greek tragedies in the ancient tradition. We see a six-page parable of how tradition and expectation in this world are not simply an oral story, but a living judgment. And in this world, where the old gods still live and breathe and impact their subject, refusal of these traditions is forfeit of your life. Just as Diana straddles these lines of modernity and tradition herself, the story juxtaposes them as well. We cut from the ancient story of binding honor and subjugation of the namesake Hecadia ritual to the very next page presenting a modern-day theme of crime and murder. We are introduced to Danielle Wellis through her final murder in a serial crime spree, and we see another subject of willful subjugation, Batman, a superhero defined by his own strictly adherent codes to ending crime and never, under any circumstance, condoning death. Danielle escapes justice at Batman's hands and ends up in New York at the Themyscira Embassy, where she sees Wonder Woman in a larger-than-life entry from the skies. And Danielle falls into a practice ritual of Diana's old and forgotten traditions. She makes Hekeshia and serves as Diana's supplicant, binding them both into a deadly contract. And here is where I'm going to take a moment to say, I am sorry if we are saying this word wrong. (laughs) Neither of us are Greek by any means. We're many flavors of white between us. Greek is not one of them. As they do so. The art by J.G. Jones rises to the occasion, providing realistic renderings with the help of Wade Von Graubadger's inks and Dave Stewart's earthly tones, while accenting the margins and nominal spaces between panels with detailed homages to ancient Greek art, Hellenistic pottery, sculpture, and painting, all positioned in a place of silent commentary, like a play choir. Diana and Danielle Both are being watched and judged by the old traditions. They feel alien and ominous. And with the introduction of the living and deadly Uranus, threatening. Diana and her supplicant are caught in a deadly game, subject to an ancient standard that is almost unrecognizable to the modern age. Diana seems pleased and relieved to have someone in this modern world who understands her culture and tradition, who has taken the time to look into it and understand it but she is also physically and spiritually threatened by the reminder of her faraway home. As an ambassador, she's used to bringing her culture to others and is purposefully the best of that culture as seen in her UN work and her nonfiction book she publishes, Reflections, essays about her life and perspectives from home that she wishes to bring to the modern world. The joy of tradition, the fear of expectations from an older world, and the mystery of what has brought someone to her doorstep is in such a desperate state plagues her. 
She, more than anyone, is familiar with the way Greek tragedies find their ends. She simply doesn't expect for it to come at such a personal cost. Then again, that's how Greek tragedy always goes. Batman is one of the trinity with Diana, DC's three most allotted figures, and within the lore itself, one of the few personal equals Diana has within her life. One of the few friends who can face her as an authoritative equal. And when he comes looking for Danielle with all the stubborn adherence to his own moral code that Diana has to her own traditions and spirituality, we see the proverbial unstoppable force meet the equally proverbial immovable object. Diana is honor bound to save Danielle, protect her at any cost, including that of her friendship with Batman and her duty to live by modern law. Her culture, her tradition, hold power over her first and foremost. She acts upon her cacadia and protects her supplicant, regardless of what her supplicant has done or why. And just to pile on more tragedy, Danielle does have what she, what she and Diana perceive as a noble cause for her murder spree. A modern story that is horribly realistic for those of us in the modern world. Her sister being a victim of human trafficking, of a common method used to entrap young and naive women while chipping away at their humanity and personhood. Danielle's victims are all guilty of victimizing others. And Danielle, well-read and adherent to the old culture Diana has reintroduced to the world, cries for old justice. Diana is subject to her tradition, and by bringing it to the modern world, she has made Danielle subject to the threat of the Aranese too. Even though it is current and real for Diana, for Batman and Danielle, just as Diana says to Danielle, those laws that they're citing are from 3,000 years ago. Batman is the modern morality, modern notion of justice, and he is stubbornly adherent to it. Even when he attempts to supplicate himself to Diana and countermand the Hecatia done by Danielle by mimicking the ritual, he cannot invoke it. He doesn't believe in the old ways. He is not a convert to it. Just as Diana cannot fully abdicate herself from the old ritual while standing as their ambassador to modernity, they are at an impasse. They are both locked in a fight that no one can win. They are only freed from the struggle and from the bloodthirst of the Aranese when Danielle frees Diana of her Hecadia and plunges to her death from a bridge. Batman cannot save a life and cannot force Danielle to face modern justice. Diana cannot save her supplicant from the shackles of old ritual, and they all lost the ability to see the ending they wanted. There is no joy in being freed from their respective journeys. Diana ends the graphic novel in tears, robed in modern clothes and architecture while tradition looms over her. She reflects, as she had in the beginning, that it was never this cold on Themyscira. When reflecting on this graphic novel, one of the most remarkable parts of it is how much it stands out from the standard comic book fare. This is not a superhero story, and it's not like any indie non-superhero story I've read in comics either. It truly doubles down on reflecting a different tradition entirely. It's an ode to Greek tragedy and oral tradition which is what makes it work so well as a Wonder Woman story without adhering to the plot structure of your average beat-em-up superhero story. According to John Gold, the act of Hecadia in the Greek tradition is an establishment of authority within texts, such as the Iliad. A Hecadia ritual is performed by a supplicant 
who falls to the knees of a figure of authority in request for a favor. Power is the key dynamic in the ritual. A supplicant acknowledges power in the person they seek favor from, and power is acquired by granting a request or fulfilling an errand. It is an essential social hierarchy in the society that places a man, like Achilles in the Iliad, in the same position as a god, like Zeus within the same text. In an arguably more egalitarian society, like what is strived for in the modern world, these ideas of acquiring or granting power through willful subjugation is difficult to comprehend. While authority is real and visible, the idea of these acts having physical weight on someone's behavior is not quite as popular. Unless you connect it with the concept of ritual, which for anyone who has kneeled in a Catholic mass before would be more familiar with. We even have our own fancy name for it, genuflection. Ritual is a way in which the past and tradition still holds power over people, especially when tradition is one of the ways that you remain connected from a culture that you have been separated from in some way, sometimes just by the slippage of time and generations, sometimes by physical distance both of which are elements at play for Diana. She's not currently exiled in this version of the story, but she frequently is. It's also not a mistake that Greg Rucka places such an emphasis on Diana's role as an ambassador to the modern world either. She is actively attempting to bring to the world the best of her own culture, ideals, religion. It is her job, her mantra, her entire purpose in leaving a home that is often referred to in text as a literal paradise island. But tradition is not a word that carries the weight of a moral good or a moral bad. It's neutral. And depending on the hands it is in, the results can go either way. The tragedy of Diana in this story is that her worldview, her progressiveness, her ideals, they are not wholly compatible with the modern world. Even when her equals, like Batman, she, f- she stands apart. She will never perfectly see eye to eye. There is a loneliness in standing one foot in the present and one foot in the past. Even when Batman tries to act out the roles of her culture, tries to meet Diana where she is, he can't. It is not a meeting of the minds that can happen with their drastically opposed viewpoints. This past is a story we can learn from that we can gain from, but it's not always one we can fully bring with us. Sometimes we can take good lessons and examples with us, but sometimes we're justifying things in the present with a law that is 3,000 years out of date. When asked about the Hecadia, Greg Rucka has emphasized that he sees the story as a very limited presentation of the character. He said that the story is meant to focus on just one facet of her, one that often doesn't receive focus as opposed to his ongoings, which he has the ability to focus on full ranges of her character. This makes sense with the philosophy Greg Rucka has promoted with all superheroes he works with. In a 2005 interview at Wizard World Boston, Rucka said, when you write characters like Batman, they're not yours. Superman is bigger than any writer. When I write these characters, I'm serving them. Even with that philosophy, it's still astounding that a writer's first outing with a character could be something like the Hecadia. Rucka's love for the character is well known, especially among other professionals in the industry. That's an impressive amount of devotion from someone who's had the opportunity to write for Batman and Superman, as well as Wonder Woman. In many ways, this 2002 graphic novel acts as a precursor to the introspective and Hellenistic take 
Rucka's eventual three-year run on Wonder Woman, uh, the 1987 through 2006 version, would take. So much of that is now collected in many editions that c- collect the landmark Rucka run. It's also a primer for people aching for something more mature in comic storytelling, well-crafted tragedies, or people interested in elevated superhero stories in general. Not to mention a must for Wonder Woman fans and prospective Wonder Woman fans alike. Do we give it stars? I feel like reviewing media requires some kind of star system. No, we're too classy to do something productive like give star ratings. What do you want us to do next? Plot holdings? Okay, but hear me out. Wonder Woman's costume has stars. Hmm. How about five tiaras out of five? How about five lassos of truth out of five? Five kangas out of five. Oh, kangas. Actually, the story didn't have any writable kangaroos now that you mention it. Zero stars. Sorry, Rucka. Try again. Bring back Jumpa 2021. All right. So that is our review of Hikatea. Uh, so now it is time to suggest some further reading. Uh, for a classic rec this week, I'm going. I'm definitely digging into the Rucka back catalog here. And so I am going straight for one of my favorites. Uh, one, of the co- one of the first comics that grabbed me into Gotham City and never really let me go. Gotham Central is an all- still an all-time favorite for me even, uh, years after I originally discovered it. It tells the story of Gotham City's police department, particularly the story of Renee Montoya. It explores what it means to live in Gotham City, the relationship between Batman and ordinary police officers, and particularly Renee Montoya's struggles with with addiction and her sexuality. The arc in which she is forced out of the closet, in particular, Half a Life, was formative for me, specifically because Batman comes to her defense throughout the story. It's not stated directly, but Bruce Wayne's belief in her and statement of her value as an individual made me feel, as a young queer teenager, seen and given value by a character who I looked up to. It's also gorgeously rendered and super well-written. And Renee Montoya remains an all-time favorite character for me, from her appearances through 52, the Crime Bible miniseries, Detective Comics, and recently, Rucka's Lois Lane maxi-series. So taking on the more modern recommendation, I'm going to suggest another Wonder Woman graphic novel. Uh, This time, I'm going to be wrecking something from the YA crowd. Uh, As a teacher, it means a lot to me to be able to recommend uh, YA content uh, for aspiring comic readers. And in this case, Wonder Woman Tempest Tossed is a fantastic YA graphic novel. It's a modernized retelling of Diana's arrival to man's world. It deals with a Diana younger than we usually see her. Um, And she's immediately thrust into this complicated and difficult modern world uh, while still being guided by her cultural heritage and strong morals. Uh, The story is by Lori Halsey Anderson, who I hope to see uh, more comics from in the future, and is drawn by Leela Del Duca, who does a great job of balancing a complicated world with the youthful energy that you want to see in YA comic art. Uh, hopefully, uh, like Wonder Woman Tempest Toss, this is going to inspire new generations of Wonder Woman fans to make the world a better place and is a great introduction for the little guys. 
And that's it. A Wonder Woman episode proper instead of just vaguely alluding to William Marston's kinks. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe, leave a review or a rating, or tell a friend and spread the word. If you've got an episode suggestion, thoughts about Wonder Woman, or just really like comics, you can tweet us at at yellowboxespod or email us at yellowboxespodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Kevin MacLeod for the music that searches our intro and outro. Feeling good. Thanks for listening. Isn't that what Steve Rogers is? You mean Steve Trevor? Oh, right. <laughs> she doesn't date Captain America. Although I think they get along. I think she, I think. I think- they, would, they would get along. They would, they would compare uh, boyfriends. Yeah. <laughs>